You're listening to an episode of a Wondery Plus exclusive series. To continue listening, join Wondery Plus and enjoy ad-free listening to over 40,000 episodes, early access to your favorite podcasts, and more. Find Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. It's evening in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. An 11-year-old Elizabeth Safar is struggling to breathe. Her shoulders arch up to her ears as her chest muscles contract, fruitlessly trying to fill her lungs with air. Can't breathe. Try the inhaler again. You'll be okay. Elizabeth's nanny covers her mouth and nose with a large plastic mask and squeezes the bulbous rubber end of the inhaler to administer the medication. Breathe in. Elizabeth tries, but her airways are too constricted. The medication can't get to her lungs. Elizabeth's breathing grows even more strained. Her eyes flutter. Panicked, the nanny runs to the phone. Pick up, pick up. Finally, an answer. Johnson & Sons Funeral Home. How may I help you? I need an ambulance right away. Okay, what's the address? When it arrives, the ambulance looks like a converted hearse. Because it is one. The era of modern emergency medical transport has not yet begun. At this point in history, calls like this were generally dispatched to funeral homes, simply because their vehicles were suited to transporting bodies. When the driver loads Elizabeth into the back of the hearse, her breathing is shallow and labored. Her lips have turned blue, and she's on the edge of consciousness. The nanny squeezes into the back, holding Elizabeth's hand and praying. There is nothing else to be done. When the ambulance drops Elizabeth at University Hospital, she is no longer breathing. She's lost consciousness. A nurse greets them at the door. Seeing Elizabeth's state, she speaks sharply to the ambulance driver. How long ago did she lose consciousness? No idea. Sorry. The nurse helps Elizabeth onto a gurney and pushes her inside the hospital. Doctors swarm around her. In a few minutes, they manage to ease her asthma attack and get her breathing again, but she's still unconscious. As they stabilize the patient, one of the doctors realizes who she is. My God, this is Elizabeth Safar. A tense silence falls over the group until one doctor speaks up. We need to call her father. He's not here. He's at that conference in Chicago. Several hours later, Dr. Peter Safar arrives at the hospital. He's one of the world's leading experts in emergency medicine. He's called the father of CPR, and he founded the first intensive care unit in the country. But none of this helped Elizabeth. When she needed him, he was hundreds of miles away, powerless. Now he sits at her bedside, watching her chest effortlessly rise and fall, as if the whole ordeal never happened. She is alive, but she went too long without air. Brain cells begin to die in as little as four minutes without oxygen. And Elizabeth went much longer than that. There is no hope that she will ever wake up from her coma. Dr. Safar turns to the other doctors in the room. Too much time was wasted before treating her. I can assure you she was the highest priority as soon as she arrived, but we can't treat people before they're in the hospital. Dr. Safar shakes his head. That's not good enough. If she'd been treated while she was in the ambulance, 
they might have saved her from brain damage. Elizabeth Safar dies three days later. It may sound like a tale from another era, but the year is just 1966. Elizabeth Safar's death will take an idea her father had idly entertained for years and turn it into an obsession to train drivers to provide emergency care in the field in a vehicle that serves as a state-of-the-art mobile hospital unit. Dr. Safar and his vision will be resisted by the ideologies and prejudices of his time. But with the help of an unlikely team, he will transform America's idea of emergency healthcare and save millions of lives. Although the outcome of his story may now feel inevitable, at the time, it was anything but. Do you ever wonder where all your money went? Like every single time you look at your bank account? Honestly, it's probably all those subscriptions. I felt that way too, until I got Rocket Money. Rocket Money helped me see all the subscriptions I'm paying for, and it was eye-opening. Between streaming services, fitness apps, delivery services, it all adds up so quickly. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year, with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. That's rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. Rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app and answer a few questions. With Angie, you can book instantly at an upfront price or request and compare quotes from multiple pros so you can find the best price for your project. So the next time you have a home project, just Angie that and start getting the most out of your home. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. From Wondery, this is American Innovations, and I'm Stephen Johnson. Today, it's almost second nature. If you or someone you know experiences a medical emergency, you dial 911 and a squad of trained medical professionals arrives at your door. But just 55 years ago, that was not the case. Although designated vehicles to transport sick or injured people have been around since ancient times, the idea of a mobile medical unit that provided treatment was first developed during World War I. But for the most part, the idea stayed within the military. For civilians, transport to the hospital was handled by funeral homes or by the police, who stuck patients in the back of paddy wagons. You'd be lucky if the person transporting you had any first aid training at all. Then, in the 1950s, the country started building big interstate highways, and its medical needs abruptly changed. Tens of thousands of people were dying in high-speed car accidents. By 1963, 
traffic deaths topped 40,000 per year. The National Research Council reported that a soldier shot in Vietnam had a better chance of surviving than a housewife in a car accident in the suburbs because the soldier in Vietnam got immediate, trained medical care. Throughout the 1960s, volunteer rescue squads and fire departments began experimenting with different kinds of pre-hospital care. But in Pittsburgh, 20th century topography converged with the fates of a few individuals and one ambitious vision to spin a medical revolution into being. This is the story of the modern-day ambulance. It's November 4, 1966, and a community organizer named Phil Hallen is crowded in at a campaign rally for the Democratic nominee in the race for governor of Pennsylvania. I know Milton Shop, and I mean it when I say he is the man for the job. But the speeches feel far away from what Hallen cares about, the people of the Hill District neighborhood at the heart of Pittsburgh's African-American community. Over the last decade, the city raised over a thousand buildings and displaced several thousand residents in a misguided attempt at urban renewal. Now the neighborhood is burdened by extreme poverty and chronic unemployment. Emergencies are everywhere. Drug overdoses, heart attacks, stabbings, strokes. But racism makes matters worse. The private ambulance companies often refuse to serve the neighborhood. They say it's too dangerous. Even police drag their feet. Hallen hears stories about cops refusing to touch people in medical need because they're black. Hallen is white, but he's an organizer in the movement for civil rights and a public health advocate. He believes that racism, poverty, and physical and mental health are inseparable issues. Hallen doesn't just want to address the emergencies in the neighborhood. He wants to bring jobs and hope back to the Hill District. But he doesn't know the best way to do that. It's a problem that is never far from his mind. The election is in four days, ladies and gentlemen. On stage, the former Pittsburgh mayor, David Lawrence, has gotten the crowd whipped up. But suddenly, it seems, something is wrong. His breathing has become labored, and he seems to be losing his train of thought. Like, I... Milton. Milton. He... Milton Chaps. He lets out a loud groan and clutches his chest. A collective gasp rises from the audience as Lawrence collapses. Hallen jumps up from his seat. A young woman leaps onto the stage. I'm a nurse. She strips off Lawrence's tie and unbuttons the top of his shirt before tilting his head back and breathing into his mouth. Hallen watches as she starts chest compressions, attempting to get Lawrence's heart started again. Police officers rush in with a stretcher. They work quickly to load him onto it. The nurse never stops CPR. She speaks to one of the officers. You need to keep doing this on the way to the hospital to keep blood flowing to his brain. I don't know how to do CPR. The nurse isn't satisfied with this answer. Then I'm going with you. You're welcome if you can fit. There's only room for one in the back of the ambulance. Watching all this, Phil Hallen feels like his brain is spinning at a million miles a minute. The beginnings of a solution for multiple problems come into focus. Hallen had worked as an ambulance driver while he was a student at Syracuse. He knows that the average driver only receives 10 hours of training. But what if that wasn't the case? 
What if we train people to bring the hospital to the patient and not just the patient to the hospital? What if the people we trained came from the Hill District? If Hallen started an ambulance company based out of the Hill District, he could provide better medical care to the community and create jobs in one fell swoop. David Lawrence makes it to the hospital alive, but just like Elizabeth Safar, he goes too long without oxygen to his brain. He remains in a coma for 17 days before passing away. Phil Hallen had never met Dr. Peter Safar, but they are now on a collision course, connected by a single goal. Within three months of witnessing Lawrence's heart attack, Hallen begins working on his idea for an ambulance service in earnest. In February 1967, he approaches Freedom House, a new organization designed to fund businesses that benefit the black community. Freedom House is flush with a grant from one of President Johnson's anti-poverty programs. They immediately see the value in Hallen's vision and come on board. It's a step forward, but now he needs a medical director. As fate would have it, arguably the best person for the job, Dr. Peter Safar, lived in his same city. And Dr. Safar was one step ahead of Hallen. Safar was 12 years old when Hitler invaded his home country, Austria. He was able to hide the fact of his Jewishness with the help from sympathetic bureaucrats. When he turned 18, he evaded service in the Nazi army by smearing a cream on his face that induced a flare-up of severe eczema, earning him a medical deferral. Instead, he was conscripted to hard labor and later was sent to a hospital to work as a nurse for soldiers who had suffered burns. The child of two doctors, Safar had always wanted to attend medical school, and in 1943, he was accepted at the University of Vienna. Originally, he wanted to be a surgeon, but he quickly realized that progress in surgery depended on better life support to keep patients alive both before and after operations. So he switched gears and studied anesthesia. This eventually led him to the United States and then to the University of Pittsburgh. In the months after his daughter's death, Safar threw himself into designing ways ambulances and their drivers could prevent the tragedy he had experienced. It would be prohibitively expensive to staff ambulances with doctors and nurses, and there weren't enough of them anyway. So he wanted to train ordinary people in the basics of emergency care. But his colleagues were unconvinced that lay people could be trained in emergency medical response. Safar had a reputation as a charming man with a strong moral center, but he had little patience for politics. What he needed was a partner. And then one came knocking. It's winter 1967, and Phil Hallen is standing at the front door of Dr. Safar's office. Butterflies flutter in his stomach. He's nervous to be meeting the father of CPR. Come in. As Hallen enters Dr. Safar's office, he is surprised to find the doctor pouring two glasses of red wine. Can I offer you a glass? It's a little early. I find it helps creativity. Dr. Safar takes a sip and drops a large stack of documents in Hallen's lap. Hallen spots schematics for ambulances and proposed syllabi for training classes. You'll find my thoughts and ideas there. Well, this is, this is very impressive. I have certain requirements before I come on board. Okay, let's hear them. Dr. Safar takes a deep breath. This hospital 
will be the only hospital that receives all the life-threatening calls, and the data from those calls will be exclusive to us. I will be solely in charge of all training of the paramedics. I will also design the ambulance. If you cannot agree to those terms, then we should part ways now, as I will not negotiate on any of them. Hallen hesitates. He knows that Dr. Safar's terms are designed to serve Dr. Safar and his own research. If Hallen agrees to this, he's putting Dr. Safar squarely in charge of the project. Any glory that comes from success will be his. But Hallen also knows that there is no better person to lead the training. If he lets Dr. Safar walk away, he is seriously handicapping his endeavor. I can agree to that, but I have a condition of my own. All the drivers must come from the Hill District. Sure, that's fine. Hallen grins and sticks out his hand. You have a deal. A couple months later, and Dr. Safar is immersed in neatly organized stacks of papers, while a former student of his paces restlessly around his office. Dr. Safar looks up from his papers. Jerry, please, you're distracting me. I don't understand how you can be so calm at this particular moment. And tell me, how exactly is your pacing going to influence whether or not we get this grant? Gerald Esposito was the obvious third member of the team. He liked caring for people in crisis, and so at age 40, he'd returned to school, eventually meeting Dr. Safar at the University of Pittsburgh's School of Public Health. Now that Safar was in the ambulance business, he knew he needed someone to head up operations, and his former student was perfect for the job. Now they were waiting for Hallen, their fundraiser, to get back with word on the first bid for funding. When he burst through the door, he is grinning from ear to ear. The mayor loved our proposal. He's giving us $100,000. Esposito smacks Hallen enthusiastically on the back. You are incredible. This is really happening. Even Dr. Safar smiles. Good work, Phil. The only stipulation is that we need to have at least 25 people in our training class. Esposito uncorks the bottle of red wine Dr. Safar has sitting in the corner. We can do that, no problem. Dr. Safar nods. Yes, Phil, you'll be in charge of recruiting. I'll fine-tune the syllabus and Jerry... Esposito cuts him off. I'll get us some ambulances to use while we wait for the money to make the custom designs. That sounds like a plan. Esposito hands out glasses of wine. They all raise them, and Dr. Safar offers a toast. To our ambulance service. To our ambulance, to our ambulance service. service. And to keeping people alive. Training was slated to begin the first week of November. They had five months to get everything ready. The team worked around the clock. Then they hit their first stumbling block. It's nearly the end of October, and Esposito is not wasting any time getting his station wagon over to the Hill District. Their recruitment efforts have failed. Hallen collaborated with a local job center, but men were reluctant to sign up for a job they'd never even heard of before. They don't have the 25 students required by the grant, not even close. Hallen is discouraged. Dr. Safar is alarmed. Esposito is taking action. When he gets to the Hill District, he makes his way up and down each block, looking for any man who seems at all recruitable. He spots a young African-American man sitting on a bench, wearing an army jacket. He looks like a man beaten down by life. Esposito rolls down his window. Hey, man, you back from Vietnam? 
The man shakes his head. Now, home from jail. Esposito hesitates, but he remembers Hallen saying the goal was to give jobs to men who were considered unemployable. You want to learn how to save lives? The man shrugs, but Esposito is undeterred. I'll buy you a hamburger if you come with me. The man climbs into Esposito's car. Fantastic. So what's your name? Marcus. Esposito speeds off to get Marcus enrolled. That's one. Eventually, he'll pick up more ex-cons, several Vietnam vets, a few drug addicts, and allegedly even a pimp. He fills the seats, and Freedom House gets their 25 recruits and their grant. A week later, Dr. Safar throws open his classroom door and meets his students. He is almost giddy in anticipation. It's been 18 months since his daughter Elizabeth died, and he is finally training people who will prevent deaths like hers. He strides to the front of the class. Greetings, gentlemen. Welcome to the Freedom House Ambulance Service. We are about to embark on the most comprehensive emergency medical technician training the world has ever known. He passes out copies of the syllabus and points to a man in the front row. Sir, could you read the first sentence, please? The man looks up at him, wide-eyed. Dr. Safar gives him an encouraging nod. Don't be shy. This core... Dr. Safar watches the man struggle over the words. His stomach sinks, first slowly, then profoundly. I'll, I'll stop you there, sir. Let, let, me, let me ask a question, and it's important you're, you're honest here. How many of you can't read? Several hands go up. Dr. Safar looks horrified. He spent months arguing with anyone who will listen that he can train laypeople to deliver emergency medical care. But this wasn't what he had in mind. He's not sure he can do this. And if he can't, his skeptics will never give his vision a second chance. Dr. Safar takes a deep breath. He has to figure out a way. American Innovations is brought to you by Caseta by Lutron Smart Lighting Control. Brought to you by Lutron, pioneers in smart home technology. Now, you might think you need smart bulbs to get smart lighting, but there is a smarter way. Caseta's smart dimmers and switches replace the switch in your wall, making all of the lights that switch controls act smart. And who doesn't want to save money? Think about all the places in your home where a switch controls more than one bulb. Ceiling lights, chandeliers, bathroom vanities, and more. With Caseta, you can save money by replacing the switches instead of replacing all of those bulbs. Caseta also lets you control your lighting the way you want, giving you smart lighting control from an app or your voice and control at the switch that anyone can use. We've got a Caseta set up in our home, and one of the things I love is the ability to set specific scenes with a single switch or using your phone. You can set up your whole house for watching a movie or bedtime or throwing a party. So get smart lighting the smart way with Caseta by Lutron Smart Switches. Learn more about Caseta at lutron.com AI. That's lutron.com AI. It's spring 1968. 
Dr. Safar bursts into an operating room. His 25 trainees follow behind. Dr. Safar has made headway with training, but now it's time for the biggest test yet. Dr. Safar barks at a doctor standing over the patient, a tube in his hand. Put the tube down. One of my students is going to intubate this man. All of the medical staff in the room look at Dr. Safar in shock. While intubation is a routine procedure for a doctor, it is not easy. It consists of placing a tube down the airway so the patient can be ventilated while under general anesthesia. A wrongly placed tube can damage the vocal cords or be inserted in the esophagus rather than the trachea, resulting in air going into the stomach, not the lungs. The other doctor has to tread carefully. Dr. Safar is his boss. You want them to intubate? It's impossible not to hear the sneering tone of his voice. Is he skeptical because of their training, or is he skeptical because of their skin color? He's not the first to object to Dr. Safar's training techniques. The obstetricians banned Dr. Safar's men from the labor and delivery floor. He had to teach his students how to deliver a baby from films. I'm not sure I feel comfortable with that. Dr. Safar doesn't care. He wants his men to learn, and this time, as the head of anesthesiology, he has an advantage. Too bad. My department, my rules. He turns towards his trainees, who are huddled near the door. He points to one. Marcus, come here. You're going to do this one. Marcus's jaw drops. He's enjoyed the training so far. Dr. Safar is tough, but he's a good teacher, something Marcus has never had before. But he knows he's not ready for this. Me? Yes, you. We studied how to do this. It's time to do it for real. In the months since he first met his students, Dr. Safar has spent over 150 hours on classroom education. Despite the initial shock of their education level, he has not lowered his goals for training. He has set up additional general ed classes for those who need it and insists that anyone who does not have a high school diploma receive his GED before the ambulance service launches in a few months. He has made them attend rounds and lectures with residents in the hospital. They are in the middle of a six-week in-hospital training. He's had them draw blood and start IVs. Now it's time to intubate. Dr. Safar beckons Marcus forward. Hurry up. All these people are waiting on you. Marcus approaches the patient. His hands are shaking. He looks nervously at the doctors and nurses staring at him, waiting for him to fail. Dr. Safar offers no support. You think this is pressure? Imagine how it would feel if these doctors and nurses were his friends and family, waiting for you to get his airway open. Marcus nods and takes a deep breath. This is the job he signed up for. He takes the patient's chin in his hand and juts his head back, opening up the airway. Good, good. Now take the laryngoscope and put it in the right side of his mouth. Marcus's hand is shaking as he picks up the metal scope. Tentatively, he places it in the mouth. Careful, Marcus, don't chip his teeth. Marcus removes the scope and drops it back on the tray. Forget this. I'm out. He storms out of the operating room. Another thing he's failed at. He'll add it to the list. The anesthesiologist resumes his position and slips the scope in the patient's mouth without incident. I'll be taking over now, Dr. Safar. Seems your boys aren't quite up to the task. Dr. Safar can't argue with him. Embarrassed, he leads his trainees out of the room. Ultimately, intubation was cut from the training. 
only one recruit was ever able to accomplish it. It took seven months and completing a comprehensive exam that Dr. Safar required every trainee to pass with 100% accuracy, but the training finally finished in June of 1968. It may not have been everything Dr. Safar originally aspired to, but it was still the most comprehensive civilian medical training outside of becoming a doctor or a nurse. Meanwhile, Jerry Esposito secured two Hearst-style ambulances. The Freedom House Ambulance Service was officially open for business. It's two months after the ambulance service launched, and Marcus is racing through the streets of Pittsburgh, his siren blaring. He didn't quit after his intubation failure, and he's glad. Even though they've answered numerous calls, the adrenaline still surges through his body as he zips around cars and runs red lights. It's a rush. Marcus pulls up under a bridge. A man is passed out on the ground. A crowd is gathered around. Marcus hops out of the ambulance and grabs the stretcher while his partner grabs their bag of supplies. The crowd is curious to see them. What's all that stuff you got? You really think you can save this junkie's life? Marcus and his partner push their way through, ignoring the crowd. Marcus kneels down and leans his head over the patient's mouth, listening for breath. He's not breathing. Hand me the BVM. His partner hands him a large black bag that has a face mask attached. The crowd murmurs. What is that thing? Marcus places the mask over the man's mouth and nose and squeezes the bag slowly. The man's chest rises and falls in time to Marcus's compressions. It's a bag valve mask. It lets us get oxygen into the lungs. I thought you all did mouth to mouth for that. Only if they're pretty, the crowd laughs. Marcus squeezes the bag two more times and then speaks to his partner. Okay, let's get him in the ambulance. They load him onto the stretcher as fast as possible and walk him back to the ambulance. The crowd parts for them. Inside the ambulance, Marcus gets the man started on oxygen while his partner drives. En route, Marcus monitors the man's vital signs, making sure his pulse and blood pressure stay stable. Halfway there, the man wakes up. His eyes fly open, and he looks around in a panic. He grabs at the oxygen mask, ripping it off his face. He turns to Marcus. Where am I? You're in an ambulance. He looks around, taking it in. This isn't like any ambulance I've been in before. That's the idea. A few minutes later, they're back at the hospital. A nurse greets them at the door, and Marcus and Jonathan hand the man over. Their job is done. Back in the crew room, Dr. Safar catches up with them. Hey, I just heard about your patient. He's going to make a full recovery, thanks to you. Nice work. Marcus blushes. He's not used to receiving praise. Thanks, Dr. Safar. He heads to the cafeteria to grab some food, still thinking about the call. It felt good to know exactly what to do when. A doctor snaps him out of his reverie. Hey, you, a kid threw up in Bay 2. Excuse me? A kid threw up in Bay 2. You need to mop it up. A nurse overhears and discerns what's happening. Yeah, uh, he's not with housekeeping, Dr. Brown. He's with that ambulance thing. You know, the, the charity program for the guys from the ghetto? Oh, he walks off without apologizing. Marcus watches him go. Rage, replacing the pride he had felt just moments before. Although the Freedom House men faced racism in the hospital, back home in the Hill District, they were heroes. They were providing medical care to people who were previously abandoned by the system. 
For the medics themselves, they found a new purpose in their lives. Men like Marcus, who had struggled in school, drifted from job to job, or gotten caught up in crime when no other path seemed possible, now took pride in their work. Marcus, who once felt he wasn't good at anything, loved being seen as a professional. He could list off his skills, his ability to perform CPR, stop bleeding, calm crowds. For the first time, he felt like a somebody. He even had kids approaching him on the street, asking him how they could join Freedom House when they were grown up. The Freedom House Ambulance Service was giving hope to the Hill District, just like Hallen had envisioned. By April 1969, a new training class was starting. And better yet, Hallen had raised the money to provide the service with two brand new ambulances designed to Dr. Safar's specifications. They were everything Dr. Safar had dreamed of, tall and wide, decked out with all the latest equipment. And they were pretty, painted orange and white with the word ambulance emblazoned across the back. In their first year, Freedom House treated almost 6,000 patients. The rate of patients who died in the ambulance was under 2%, and their average response time was less than 10 minutes. Those stats would be considered good even today. But six months later, everything changed. Phil Hallen speaking. It's December 1969. Mr. Hallen, this is James Cortese. I'm Mayor-elect Flaherty's public safety director. Pittsburgh has just elected a new mayor, one who ran on a small government platform. Calling to let you know that in the new year, the city will be cutting your grant to $50,000. $50,000? That's half of what we're getting now. Our understanding is that the original grant was really only supposed to be seed money. The service should be self-sufficient by now. Hallen is aghast. Freedom House typically serves the poorest people in the city. To be self-sufficient, they would need to collect $50 per call. Most of the patients they treat can't afford to pay that, and the state only reimburses $10. Grants cover most of their costs. With, without that money, we won't be able to make payroll. Cortese is unmoved. I'm sorry to hear that, but Mayor Flaherty is committed to trimming fat, like these kinds of anti-poverty programs. With all due respect, emergency medical care is not fat. He slams down the phone. Hallen feels his heart race as he calls Dr. Safar. He doesn't know how they're going to make up the shortage. Less than two years after it started, their grand experiment seems over. But in a roundabout way, Mayor Flaherty's decision would actually take the Freedom House vision to the next level. National. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code WONDERY to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. 
Do you ever feel like you're settling? For your foundation, that is. Maybelline's new Instant Age Rewind Eraser Foundation doesn't settle into fine lines and wrinkles. With SPF 20 and moisturizing pro-vitamin B5, this foundation not only provides medium coverage and a natural finish, but also protects and nourishes your skin. And the best part? The blurring sponge tip applicator makes application a breeze. Say goodbye to cakey, uneven foundation and hello to a flawless, radiant complexion. Try our new foundation today and see the difference for yourself at amazon.com slash instant eraser foundation. It's early 1970, and Phil Hallen can't get any potential grant makers to understand what Freedom House does. No, no, no. We're not just driving the patients to the hospital. We're, we're treating them. So you're training doctors. Helen sighs, frustrated. He can't let another funding opportunity pass them by. You know, you know what? H- how about this? Tomorrow around lunchtime, keep an eye out your office window. I've, I've got a better way to illustrate this to you. The next morning, Hallen and two Freedom House paramedics leave Pittsburgh at dawn and drive six hours to New York City. They pull up to the Ford Foundation's office on 43rd Street and throw open the ambulance doors, welcoming passersby to come on board. Ladies and gentlemen, step up, step up, step up to the most advanced ambulance the world has ever seen. People take up the offer. What is this thing? That's a defibrillator. It's how we shock a heart during a cardiac arrest. What's that? That's an OPA. We put it in an unconscious patient's mouth to keep the airway open. The crowd is impressed. Maybe my mom would still be alive if an ambulance like this had shown up. On the sidewalk, Phil Hallen talks with the Ford Foundation rep, who claps Hallen on the shoulder. We're going to give you that, Grant. The Freedom House Ambulance didn't only go to New York City. Over the next several years, the ambulances barnstormed the country, speaking to charitable groups from Kansas to Connecticut. Dr. Safar even took some of the Freedom House medics to Europe to showcase their skills. Everywhere they went, people were amazed. Suddenly, the old station wagon-style ambulances no longer seemed adequate. Cities started to feel pressure to improve their care. Los Angeles, Seattle, Miami, and others started services similar to Freedom House. However, there were still no national standards. The level of care patients received varied greatly depending on where they lived. Back in Pittsburgh, Freedom House trundled on. Phil Hallen managed to keep the grants coming in, but Mayor Flaherty made them a target of a personal vendetta. Dr. Safar refused to back down from his mission to make emergency hospital care a fundamental public service, as much a priority as a police force or fire department. Mayor Flaherty, on the other hand, argued that ambulances were the responsibility of the private sector, chiefly hospitals. Dr. Safar was adamant that if Freedom House had been staffed by white men, the city would have been far less resistant. He minced no words, calling the mayor out for negligence and racism. Dr. Safar needed to figure out a way to get around Mayor Flaherty's short-sightedness. Fortunately, he got an assist from an unlikely source, Hollywood. It's 1971, and television producer Robert Snader is stalking the halls of UCLA's Harbor Medical Center. 
He has a notebook in hand, but he's not writing anything down. His show, Adam 12, about the Los Angeles Police Department, is doing well. But he's antsy to come up with a new show. You're only as good as your next hit in this town. He has an idea that he'd like to write a medical show, so he's come to the hospital to watch doctors in action. But so far, he's uninspired. It feels like it's all been done before. He wants something fresh, something exciting. Frustrated, he heads towards the door to get some air and clear his head. Suddenly, two firemen come bursting in, carrying a woman on a stretcher. Her face is swollen shut, and she's struggling to breathe. Even Snader can tell she's not in good shape. The firemen push past. Out of the way! Snader leaps to the side. A nurse comes rushing forward. The firemen yell out to her. We got a possible case of anaphylaxis. Pulse is weak and thready. Started around 15 LPM O2 en route. They transfer the patient to a gurney, and the nurse takes over. Senator watches the men awestruck. Their uniforms say firemen, but they talk like doctors. Senator calls out to them as they leave. Who are you guys? We're paramedics. They saunter out the door like modern-day cowboys. Robert Snader knows what his next show is going to be. In January 1972, NBC premiered Emergency, a show that followed two paramedics stationed out of the fictional Fire Station 51 in Los Angeles. It showcased all the newest emergency medical techniques. At the time it began airing, only 5% of the country had access to the level of care depicted. Viewers demanded answers. Why were their lives valued less than the lives of residents of only a handful of cities? Why wasn't the federal government ensuring that all citizens of the country had this level of care? The outcry was big enough that Congress had to act. In 1973, it passed the Emergency Medical Services Systems Act to develop national standards of care. President Nixon signed it into law. The impact of Freedom House was being felt nationwide. Dr. Safar was named to the committee developing the standards, and he used what he had learned as the medical director of Freedom House to inform the discussion. One of his protégés, Dr. Nancy Caroline, was tasked with developing a national training curriculum. The one she devised was very similar to the one Dr. Safar used to train the original Freedom House recruits. But while Freedom House was setting the standards on the national level, on a local level, it was facing defeat. It's 11.59 p.m. on October 14, 1975. Dr. Safar... Phil Hallen, Jerry Esposito, and a group of paramedics sit in the crew room. They all stare at the second hand as it makes its way to midnight. No one says a word. Everyone is lost in their own world. After years of cuts, Mayor Flaherty has finally ceased funding Freedom House completely. Instead, he's announced the creation of a city-run ambulance service. As final payback to Dr. Safar, he is essentially excluding the Freedom House employees from joining by requiring everyone to start training all over again. The clock strikes midnight. Esposito sighs and picks up the red phone that hangs on the wall. Dispatch. This is Freedom House Ambulance Service. Signing off. He hangs up without another word. Nine years after it was conceived... Freedom House Ambulance Service is over. Their legacy, however, lived on. Training programs spread rapidly. 
By 1977, 8,000 people across the country had graduated from paramedic training programs. In 2014, there were over 240,000 paramedics in the United States. Dr. Safar continued working on life-saving techniques until his death in 2003. He was nominated for the Nobel Prize in Medicine three times. Phil Hallen remained an active community organizer until his retirement in 1999. Jerry Esposito ran the Emergency Medical Services Institute, a paramedic training organization in western Pennsylvania, before he also passed away in 2003. Today, you can call an ambulance from the mountains of Albuquerque or a skyscraper in Manhattan and be confident that trained people with a fully stocked rescue vehicle will come to your aid. An ambulance is a type of invention that seems so obvious, it's hard to imagine a time when it didn't exist. But innovations demand more than just vision to become commonplace. It takes a certain kind of fate to move an idea from a dream to a protocol. In Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, the right people came together in the same place at the same time. None of the individuals behind Freedom House could have developed the modern-day ambulance on their own. They needed each other. The product of their combined skills has saved countless lives. If you like our series, please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, NPR One, and every major listening app, as well as at Wondery.com. If you're listening on a smartphone, tap or swipe over the cover art of this podcast. You'll find the episode notes, including some details you might have missed. And a quick note about these historical recreations you've been hearing. In most cases, we can't know exactly what was said, so those scenes are dramatizations but they're based on real historical research. You can find some of the books and articles we found useful in the episode notes. American Innovations is hosted by me, Stephen Johnson. For more information on my books about science and innovation, including my latest one, Farsighted, just out in paperback, you can visit my website, www.stephenberlinjohnson.com. This episode was written by Austin Rackless, with editing by Liza Veal. Our producer is Emma Cortland. Executive produced by Marshall Louis and Hernan Lopez for Wondery. It's all a lighthearted nightmare on our podcast, Morbid. We're your hosts. I'm Alina Urquhart. And I'm Ash Kelly. And our show is part true crime, part spooky, and part comedy. The stories we cover are well-researched. He claimed and confessed to officially killing up to 28 people. With a touch of humor. I'd just like to go ahead and say that if there's no band called Malevolent Deity, that is pretty great. A dash of sarcasm and just garnished a bit with a little bit of cursing. This mother Lied like a liar. Like a liar. And if you're a weirdo like us and love to cozy up to a creepy tale of the paranormal, or you love to hop in the Wayback Machine and dissect the details of some of history's most notorious crimes, you should tune in to our podcast, Morbid. Follow Morbid on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to episodes early and ad-free by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts.